HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Will Harris, and today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures. To Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, 261 Moore Street, where brunch is now being served. Um, today's program is a continuing exploration of the phenomenon of urban agriculture, which, um, okay, granted, started a couple of centuries ago, but really is uh, gathering steam in a big way now. Um, and especially uh, in no other place than Brooklyn, it's um, just huge in Brooklyn. And our guest today is Paul Lightfoot, who is the CEO of Bright Farms, which is, as far as I know, uh, the biggest outfit in the business. Um, They are uh, building out or perhaps have already finished building out a 100,000 square foot facility in Atlantic Navy Yard, in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. And then Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. Um, and you, uh, so let me just finish this little intro. You are the CEO of Bright Farms, a company which designs, finances, builds, and operates greenhouse farms at grocery retailers, eliminating time, distance, and costs from their produce supply chain. So not only do you have these very large facilities, as you do in Sunset Park in Queens and in uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yards, but you also build them on top of actual grocery stores? Yeah, we're uh, and by the way, the Sunset Park Brooklyn project of ours is in development right now. It's not open yet. Oh, it's but, yeah, not we, open. Yet. We don't always build on roofs, but we like to. We like to have to always be in the same community mm-hmm. that the food is going to be consumed in, and oftentimes, like in a place like Brooklyn, that will mean that we'll build on the roof of the building, and occasionally we're building on the roofs of supermarkets as well. Right. Um, so you guys, uh, you know, this this whole thing just makes my little heart go pity pat with joy because here I, I'm looking at, well, you know, there's so many great projects out there and there's lots and lots of urban ag going on all over this country and all over the mm-hmm. world, really. But um, you guys seem to have figured out a way of doing this that um, is on a scale that is exponentially larger than almost anybody else's. Um, and you seem to have found the money to do that. Now, how did you, first of all, you come from a back Background of retail supply, right? So, yeah, and, so, and that's one of the lenses through which I look at this, which right. is why I think about it on a scale basis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was what interested me about you is that you don't come from an ag 
you know, background. You come from um, a background in distribution, essentially. Am I right yeah. there? Yeah, no, that, that's accurate. I ran a uh, software company for about nearly 10 years that improved the supply chains of, of mostly of big retailers and of the suppliers. So I, I, I naturally think about the systems that bring products from where they're sourced to where they're consumed. And not necessarily food products, but products of any kind, software. That's right, although you know, I should add that I was a, a sort of a food weirdo for a long time. And I, I uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, when I was in school, I, was, I bartended in, in, in restaurants in New York City and, and sort of fell in love with food, first as a chance to impress girls and later as mm-hmm. just a, a thing that I, I loved. And as I got into my 30s, I'm 42 now, I started... I started being probably the only, you know, supply chain software CEO anywhere who who did most of his family's food buying and preparing and and very focused on non-processed, local and healthy foods. And so it's not an accident I found my way here. I, I, this this business was really a chance for me to combine really what I cared most about personally with what I've been building my career on, which which helps me understand my clients, talk their language, so, you know, identify and solve their needs, but also, you know, leads to a, a pretty rewarding experience and a good time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it sounds absolutely brilliant. So um, now you guys grow your almost all of your greenhouses or maybe all of them are hydroponic. Is that correct? All of them. Yes. Okay. So now hydroponic vegetables are not a new phenomenon. And um, I've had Jen Nelkin on from Gotham Greens, and I know Bright Farms was involved as a consultant in that in that program. And, and yep. she um, she made some interesting points about um, about hydroponic growing. Um, I, you know, I think we all know that they look really pretty, but I think we also know that a lot of times they taste like just as bland and boring as any piece of vegetable that has traveled X number of miles or been in a cooler for X number of days or weeks. So how do you guys... Um, um, you know, what makes yours better, or are they better? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the first thing I would say is we could go eat some of Jen's products. They're, they're fabulous. They're delicious, right? Sure and, they and, are. And, the, and the reason why is not because she's producing in a hydroponic greenhouse. She, she is, or whether she was producing in a field, she could be. It's, it's because the, the biggest factor in whether, in whether produce is, is really uh, compelling is, is generally it's freshness. I mean, you control the inputs and the outputs. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you put a tomato you know, on a truck starting in Mexico and, and it bounces all the way to Chicago, that's about the worst thing you can do to a tomato. So you can, you can grow just as high-quality produce in a greenhouse as you can in a field. It's how you grow it, when you pick it, and how you treat it that, depends, that, that determines how it will how it will taste and how its nutrition is going to be. Well, what we about your what about the nutrients that go into the hydroponic solution? I mean, don't you have to be kind of picky about what you flow through their water? I mean, otherwise they yeah, don't really yeah, have you, a lot of juice. You wouldn't more. you wouldn't feel differently in a field. I mean, yeah, of course, you think very very carefully about the inputs, and you can you know you can really dial in the degree of sweetness, the, the thickness of the skin, mm-hmm. absolutely. And that's that's uh, you might use different techniques using. Uh, you know, NFT or a substrate instead of soil, but you're essentially doing the same thing. And what about genetics? Do you pick heirloom varieties, or are, are you able to use um, sort of more fragile seed stock, say, for instance? Because, I mean, I think we all know that tomatoes are grown so that they can be transported, so therefore yeah. they are of yeah. a specific seed stock that is designed to be able to be moved rather than eaten. Um, I yeah. think you pointed that out in your TEDx talk, which was I said to yeah. you before was really excellent. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> so can you grow more specialty-type um, products in your yeah, farms so, because so, you don't move First them? of all, as you can imagine, you know, we would never go near any any seeds that, that were uh, that were not you know certified non-GMO. 
we um we can what we can do differently than you know and when i think about where we're going in the market i'm thinking about the the broad mainstream produce supply chain, which is sourcing tomatoes from Ontario and Mexico and California, mm-hmm. and lettuces in this country and supermarkets are almost entirely from Arizona and California. Mm-hmm. We can, what we can do differently than the current suppliers is that we can grow produce that is great in every respect except for traveling. You know, right. if, if, a, if a tomato is nutritious, beautiful, and delicious, and those are really the three things I'm going to care about, but it doesn't do well for two days in a truck, that's fine. I can, I can, uh, I can focus on that. Um, but this this question to talk about it as narrowly about seeds probably does a, a disservice to the to the actual way that you you just treat the produce when when it's picked how it's handled and how quickly it, it's on the shelves. Uh-huh. We can the most important thing you can do essentially is, is pick in the morning and sell it in the afternoon. Yeah. You know this by going to to the farmers market. That's what makes. That's what's going to make the produce the, the, the biggest difference in how it tastes and feels. I guess that's true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in the country. That's certainly what, <laughs> certainly what we did. Now, let's talk a little bit about what you guys do grow besides tomatoes. You grow lettuces. You grow herbs. What else can you grow and what can you not grow? Yeah, so we're, and, and the reason, I didn't say this before, the reason we do hydroponic, by the way, is not because we believe it's intrinsically better. It's because we're in, we're, we are almost always constrained by space. All of these farms are in urban areas, mm-hmm. and therefore we have to squeeze the most production per square foot. And, and growing in a greenhouse hydroponically lets us get a much higher yield. With lettuces, it's like 30 times higher than, than field, and with tomatoes, it's like 10 times higher. And when we, when to answer your question about what we grow, Right now, we've got this business model innovation, so we're trying not to take any risks on our execution. We only want to use things that have been proven before in the market when it comes to how we operate our sites. So right now, we're focused on, as you said, lettuces and tomatoes and herbs. Um, not hard for us to add uh, things like peppers and cucumbers as well, where we've got a lot of experience and there's a lot of commercial data. Mm-hmm. In the future, give us a few more years to do some R&D and stuff, you're almost sure to see us doing some things like squashes and melons, but particularly berries. The strawberry market, for example, is a bit broken in this uh, in this country, and we'd like to uh, you know, we'd like to make a difference in that market. Why? Where do strawberries come from primarily, besides California well, and and Florida as well? Florida. But you know, there's a huge amount of concentration in the market, which supermarkets don't like. Uh-huh. Um, they don't have a lot of, of a lot of year-round suppliers that can meet their volumes, and it's a huge mover. Everyone, I've got a, a guy with kids in my house, and all of them eat strawberries all the time. And you're often faced with, you know, nine. And who wants to eat strawberries and are organic, right? So you're often faced with nine dollar pints mm-hmm. in the off season, and you know, hard as rock or soupy strawberries, depending yeah. on where they're coming from. And almost no flavor, no matter what. So. Oh, awful! Huge yeah. and huge. And I mean, I really, terrible. I rarely buy them. I rarely buy them. I mean, you yeah. know, if I'm not going to get them myself out of the field, I just, I'm not interested. Yeah. Um. So tell me, what are the limitations to your technology? Like, um. You know, is there any reason why we couldn't have a rooftop farm on every single supermarket or, or you know, every single apartment building? I mean, could this become? I mean, I wanted to talk about this a little bit later, but yeah. you know, you guys have just sold. You just signed an agreement with A and P, um, which owns the Food Emporium, Pathmark, and other retail outlets. Uh, which, by the way, I was surprised because they. I, I think of them as certainly by no means a specialty market. Yeah. Um, and that was a whole interesting uh, aspect of this that I wanted to explore with you was the fact that these kind of um, what I think of as sort of um, mid-level at best supermarkets are um, are glomming onto the local thing. Like, can well, you talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah. Let's, let's let's go right at that. I think that's a great topic. And in most supermarkets across the country, 
local is a hugely successful strategy in the marketing departments, but isn't really getting any traction in the produce departments. You know, it's, it's, it turns out it's very hard for large supermarket chains to meet this growing and huge and important demand for local because they're just systemically not set up to do it. And often, you know, they don't feel great about local growers who don't produce year-round. They don't produce at the same sort of quality specifications and, and, and usually not at enough volumes. What we're doing is giving a supermarket chain like A&T or like Super Value a chance to meet the the demand for local that they're otherwise not able to, but let's let's talk about A and P. Uh, I feel I feel fabulous about our partnership with A and P, mm-hmm. and I want to I want to I want to sort of give a foundation for that for that by saying that we're not we're not trying to like win over the market of of wealthy people who can afford niche and expensive produce. We want it, and and by the way, that market's doing fine, right? You know, I can yeah. I can drive to Stone Barns and and you know, and buy expensive produce anytime I want, and, and I can feel great about it, which is fabulous. We want to make, make a difference in the mainstream produce market. We want to go to where America is buying their produce. And in this region, A&T does a great job of that. It's got, you know, hundreds of stores in the, in the, in the region surrounding New York City. It's where, it's where the regular people do their shopping. And, yeah. and we're, you know, we're proud to be trying to change with a, with a great partner like that who's got some vision the way that, you know, the mainstream population here eats. And, and that mainstream population gets, by the way, that they want local food as well and they want to know where their food is coming from. Yeah, I think it's wicked cool. Um, so how, what's your price point like compared to the traditional supply chain? Are you guys able to keep it um, in spite of the cost of investment or whatever it costs to grow hydroponically, yeah. which can't be all that cheap? Um, is your price yeah. point able to be competitive with what's traditionally available in those markets or, or are people it, it, willing it, to it pay is, that little I'll, extra? I'll tell you why. The, um, you know, we have, as, as you guessed and you alluded to a moment ago, we have higher site cost, right? My, my capital costs are a little higher, my labor costs are a bit higher, my operating costs are a bit higher, but we have lower system costs because I don't have that 53-foot truck going 2,800 miles, and I don't, ha- I don't have a distribution company in between that's acting as a middleman, middleman with their own costs and their own profits. Mm-hmm. So, and, and just as a segue from the last topic, we're, again, not trying to be in, an, in the niche or very high-end part of the market. So we, couldn't, we wouldn't be able to succeed if our products, if our products were higher. Supermarkets are, are a thin margin, high-volume business. They can't be beaten on price by their competitors. So they won't succeed. So we're generally looking to sell better produce. You know, it's tastier, it's longer-lasting, it's safer, it's more nutritious at the same price that they're currently buying it at. And so for the supermarket, it's, it's really, you know, it's a, a chance for better profits because they have less shrink, less food goes bad while they own it. Yep. It's better produce, and it's better, for the, it's better for the planet as well, which almost any major supermarket chain now is grappling with how to become about that. Even if they don't, even if they're not hugely sincerely buying it to themselves, their customers and the, and the children of their customers are, and they know they have to respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. I just went to the National Food Policy Conference in Washington um, a few about a month or so ago. Mm. It was really interesting to hear Phil Lempert, the supermarket guru, yeah. uh, you know, talk about the top ten trends in supermarkets and um, absolutely locavore and you know sustainability, blah blah blah, all the buzzwords. Absolutely yeah. mainstream now. There's nothing, um, you know, it is not new to anybody. Um, one last thing before we um, take a short break is um, tell us how much you know. You talked for a second about having a supply chain that was regular and that it was consistent and of course obviously hydroponically in greenhouses you can grow year-round um so how much produce are you able to produce say in your brooklyn navy yards that's where you're working from right it's uh, it's the sunset park the it sunset was a former navy building so it's confusing but it's actually I in a neighborhood okay, called I'm sunset sorry. park mm-hmm. that's okay that that project will produce about a million pounds of produce for amp a year which they'll be Shazam. selling in their new york city stores 
Right. And that's let's 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 make it clear though that that's really just things like tomatoes, leafy greens, and herbs. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. So yeah. you won't be bringing in celery and cucumbers and all that until you're sort of more established obviously as Correct. you said earlier. So um I think we have to take a very short break. Yeah. Please stay on the line with us Paul. Yeah. We'll do a sponsor drop and then we'll come right back and we'll talk about some of the other projects you're involved in. Thanks Terrific. so much. Pastures is a 146-year-old multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meat that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. Welcome back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. That was our incredible sponsor, Will Harris. I mean, I would just give really hard dollars to be able to cultivate that accent. Um, I try all the time. Um, and uh, let me just remind my listeners that my guest today is Paul Lightfoot, the CEO of Bright Farms, which is a company that um, builds, sponsors, let me read your whole thing because it's so interesting, designs, finances, builds, and operates greenhouse farms at grocery retailers, eliminating time, distance, and cost from the traditional supply chain. It's such a great concept. Um, I, I just love every single thing about your business. Um, I, I wanted to. I want to get into some of the work you do with schools and with community development. Mm. Um, but I, I first want to start off like, how did you guys find the venture capital to get this going? Because one of the things that I, you know, I've been doing this radio show now for three years, and um, three plus years, and the biggest uh, bottleneck seems to be issues around. Um, warehouses, production facilities, distribution. Um, you know, nobody seems to want to invest in sort of aggregating, uh, you know, farmers and getting their produce into market. And, and you guys just like seem to have solved that conundrum. So what, what was the magic, uh, you know, what was your magic bullet to make that happen? How did you get somebody, yeah. you know, willing to say, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's go for it. You know, we've, um, there's a couple things going on broadly in the, in like the capital markets and, and, the capital markets, you know, they respond to what's going on in the world. And I think that you'll see venture capital and, and angel investors really getting the fact that local food is a massive demand that's not being met in the industry, and that there's this huge shift from foods that make you not feel well to foods that make you healthy going on, that, that's reversing, you know, several decades. And, and those, are, those are massive market opportunities that investors get. And they also understand that the cost of transportation and energy are likely to be going up over the next you know, 10 to 20 years. Right. And altogether, that means that someone who's got a business that can produce local food that's healthier on a commercial scale um, has got a chance to really do well. So I don't, I don't know that necessarily that we did anything special or, uh, or unique. You know, I guess I've, I've run businesses and raised capital before, so I sort of knew where to start. 
mm-hmm. and with whom to talk. But you know, we, most of the capital we've raised, and this will sound strange, was somewhat unsolicited. You know, I I, I go out and ask people. Uh, for money all the time to get feedback. It's very clarifying. <laughs> but, you know, I, I wasn't actually, both of the, the main investors who, who've led both of our rounds, I didn't actually ask them to do the deal. I basically was like, would, if I was doing a deal, listen to this, would you do it? And eventually they said, I don't want to get feedback anymore. I want to, I want to be in the deal. <laughs> that must have been music to your ears. Now, well, yeah, it's fine. I mean, yeah. that's the best way to, to make it work. But I did it. There is, there is capital out there to come into these markets. Just, right. you, need to, you need to make sure you're, you're talking the language of the investors, which is, you know, do you have a good market opportunity? Do you have a good plan for exploiting it? Do you have a good team? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think that is uh, key. I mean, because I think there's an awful lot of pie in the sky kind of, um, you know, yeah. operations out there that, that are still, it's like, it's why hippies failed in the 60s and 70s at their organic stuff. You know what I mean? It's like they yeah. didn't want to play game. They didn't want to play ball with the big guys. Yeah. And I think if you don't want to conform to what those expectations are in the business world, then you really will not succeed. So obviously. Well, I'm, I actually put that a different way. We, the way we think about it is we want to change the mainstream uh-huh. produce supply chain. And to succeed at that, we have to do it on a big scale. To succeed at a big scale, we have to raise a lot of capital. And to raise a lot of capital, you know what you got to do? you got to make money for your investors. <laughs> so it's like, right. if, if we're going to succeed, the mo- and the money, by the way, is nothing but fuel to get there, right? It's not an end in of itself. But if we're going to succeed, we have to do it in a way that works for investors, or we won't have a chance to scale. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you also, I mean, some of the earliest projects that you guys worked on were with schools and with community development. You were involved in the Science Barge. You were involved with Gotham Green's Jen Nelkin's project. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you've been doing, especially in the school systems? Because I've done a lot of programming around that. So let's hear that. We we love that part of our story and our heritage. So I, um, you know, I'm relatively new. I really got involved with this in 2010. But this, the, the team that I'm working with got together in 2006 as New York Sunworks. Originally, we were a, uh, a nonprofit, and, and it still exists as, our, as really our nonprofit partner now. And the first project was the Science Barge, which was really the brainchild of, of who's now my business partner in, in this business, our, our, our chairman, Ted Capolo. And it was designed to be a demonstration project to show that a, a city like New York City could have a carbon-neutral farm right in the heart of the city. And it was floating on a barge in Midtown near the, uh, the Intrepid. I visited still, it. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it still operates. It's in Yonkers now. It's, we, we gave it to a different nonprofit that's based in, uh, in the lower Hudson Valley. Mm-hmm. And it, it became, you know, the number one New York City school field trip site. It, you know, just wildly successful. And growing, by the way, the parking back to the conversation, fabulously tasty tomatoes that had people waiting around the corner in lines. And, uh, and New York Sunworks independently now has, has gone on as a partner, but they run independently, to do a handful of school uh, rooftop farms. And I was just, just on Tuesday, I was at one of them on the Upper West Side, on West 93rd Street. It's uh, Manhattan, oh, Manhattan School, school for, children. for Children. Oh, Manhattan School for Children, yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's a fabulous site. And at a, our project in Brooklyn and, and also at a greenhouse we're building in, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, we're actually building these greenhouse classrooms integrated into our commercial greenhouse farms, and we're going to have the local schools send in their grammar, grammar school-age kids to learn the, you know, the physics, the biology, and the chemistry of local food production, and it dramatically changes the way kids think about food when they grow their own food. It's the most rewarding thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's brilliant. My daughter's middle school tried to have a rooftop garden and um, yeah. a greenhouse, and it, uh, you know, lack of funding kind of killed the project. But, yeah, she went to the center school, and she also went to PS84. Okay. Um, 
or 87, PS 87. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, anyway, so let's let's move on a little bit because um, another one of my guests who I've had on quite a few times is the fabulous Dixon de Pommier, who I yeah. think of as kind of the Mac Daddy of Urban Ag. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Uh, among other things, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, among other things. I mean, I just, I absolutely love the guy. And um, so he was on a few weeks ago, and he was telling me about how, I mean, he came on three years ago when I first started doing this show with Patrick Martins, who founded the network. And um, he was one of our first guests, and he was just, I don't think he'd even written his book yet about vertical farming, although he had been working on the project yeah. for about 10 years. And he came on yeah. with Jen Nelkin. We had a fantastic conversation with them. And since then, he's published the book, and then it's gone into paperback. And he was on just recently and told me that there are actual vertical farms being built um, all over the world, including some that are multi-stories. Now, the mm. problem with vertical farms has been the energy issue around how do you get the plants to get equal amounts of light whatever yeah. um without having to burn a whole lot of fuel to do it so right. but could you imagine bright farms ever using a vertical farm model in your future i mean you guys are doing rooftop high you know greenhouses but why not i mean if your business becomes phenomenally successful would yeah. you ever do something like that yeah sure it's not hard to imagine we are i mentioned before that we're we're not focused on taking execution risk right now so we're looking for uh the leading successfully market proven technologies and, and and this sort of vertical farming isn't even though it's going it's not there yet right it's uh, it's in the bleeding edge stage but once once the technology and you know you can hear people talk about led lighting and and the way that it's changing so dramatically when there is a time where we can in a in a very energy efficient way grow food where it stacks on top of each other or it's indoors we absolutely would, because it would make it. It would enable us to have more space in an urban area. We're, we don't feel like we're there yet. Like we're very, very focused on being uh, more, you know, using, having a better environmental impact than, than what we're competing with, right? Which is stuff coming across the country. Yep. So we need to use less energy, and we're very sun focused for now. Yeah, I think. Well, it's very cool. And now, let's. Um, we have to wrap this up in a few minutes. And here is the pithiest of my questions. Yeah. Which is, how do you think this is going to change the food system as it exists now? How much competition do you imagine that you're going to be um, offering to conventional growers, et cetera? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to present a lot of competition to conventional growers. <laughs> yes, you, know, you are. I, I'm, <laughs> we're, we're not doing this to you know to have something work along the edges. We're, we're really looking to make a difference right in the heart of the mainstream yeah. uh, produce supply chain. But let me, let me say this, though. There's some, there are some big trends that bode for a growing market here. So um, our, our, our food system is, is only a couple logical steps away from our budget crisis. If you put, if you put you know, health and health care you know, as the two steps between those two things, mm-hmm. and the country is getting that, even though it's not necessarily in the current political debate. It's in people's minds. You know, you, you, I don't have to explain this to you. You're already thinking about it, and so are all your listeners. Over the next 10 years, there's going to be a tremendous growth in specialty crops and healthier non-processed foods. There has to be if we're going to make this country's budget work and if people want to live longer than the, the generation before them. And, and people people do. They have a strong desire to live. So I think there's going to be a lot of room for a lot of companies that focus on making produce. And there's not going to be one answer to the country's problems. But we do, we do intend at supermarkets like, like A&P and our other partners to displace a lot of the, the, the produce that's being transported across the country. 
That's, I, I mean, I think that is so radical. I, one of the guests I had on was a woman named Jennifer Cockrell King who wrote a book um, about urban farming, you know, really a sort of a history. And then she mm. did a tour. I don't know if you've seen her book. Of course, Mm-mm. I can't remember the name because I'm senile. I'm senile. But anyway, I do have her <laughs> name correct. And um, she talked about how um, we are basically nine meals away from chaos in any urban center because grocery stores, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, only keep a certain amount of food on the oh, shelves. Right, yeah. It's a very, you know, the turnover has to be very fast, particularly in the around the perimeters, you know, where the stuff yeah. is, is perishable. So, I mean, your the, the, a model that you present uh, or that anybody presents that involves um, keeping agriculture closer to a city is going to change that paradigm radically. Yeah, um, and, and that's all. Really, that's really like almost a national security. And food independence, uh, but that's also important. Yeah, yeah. There's a number of reasons why this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. Now, are there other companies out there that um, are already uh, taking your lead and starting to follow behind you? I, you know, the, the city just put an RFP for a huge project in the Bronx, and I, I'm going to guess that, that uh, you know at least a handful of companies bid for it. I think that that capital and entrepreneurs are absolutely flowing into the space. And it's, you know, it's not something you got to go looking for anymore. You're seeing lots of companies sprouting up doing this, which, by the way, is fabulous. It's, you know, it's uh, it, the, the more, this is early days, right? So the more yeah. good people and good investors are coming into this space, the more it's going to be accepted and grow quickly early on, which is just what we need. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think the idea of changing the food system in a way that, um you know, in such a radical way. I mean, it isn't just sort of a little Band-Aid kind of thing or or even sort of re-regionalizing the food system, although, of course, it does that as well. But um, but to really um, change that sort of uh, land-intensive, um, you know, pesticide-fertilizer-intensive type of growing that we've been focused on for the last 50 years, which has, you know, been great for as long as it lasted. Now we're finding out it <laughs> maybe wasn't so great after right, all. Not so great. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, people learn. It's, you know, I think that... I think there's a lot of anger out there. I mean, I, I certainly feel kind of pissed off myself at some things, but um, but I think that, you know, these uh, it has to be seen in a sort of historical context, uh, the way our food system has grown out since, uh, certainly since World War II, uh, when people began to outsource their food, their meals, essentially, right? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. when, when canning and frozen foods and, and, yeah. and uh, you know, Mr. Bird's Eye got his, you know, really, really started making and TV dinners and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, those things are, are the things that, that made us sort of embrace the companies that were creating that. And we created the food system that fed that beast, which was, no, we don't want to cook anymore. We want to have convenience foods. And now it's becoming clear that convenience foods are not the best foods for us. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's probably going to take just about the same amount of time to roll all that back. Um, yeah. <laughs> Although I've got, I've got nothing to be angry about. I mean, the, the biggest supermarket chain in the region just signed a, you know, know. commitment to buy a million pounds a year. Like this is not. This is, you know, I'm 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 pleased to see that, you know, we're starting from a, a place that got bad for 20 or 30 years, but it's it's starting to get better. And when yeah. when that battleship starts turning, it generates a huge amount of of water. You know, it's 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 moving and it's moving big. And it's creating a lot of opportunities. Yes, I think so. Now that was uh, that was one other thing I wanted to ask you before we leave uh, you on this interview. But I hope you'll come back another time and tell us more about what's going mm-hmm. on. Um, but how much employment do you see this bringing into uh, an urban economy? Do you see it as is it an employment uh, intensive yeah. operation, or do, can you just do this with just a few people? Well, it, and this is case by case. But let me just get, let me start let me start macro and then go down to one site for you. Okay. The 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 um, Kathleen Merrigan is the undersecretary of the USDA, mm-hmm. and she's she tells us that 
for every million dollars in local food sold, 13 jobs are supported as compared to only three for, for when food is shipped into a community. And I think that about sums it up, right? There is, you know, Brooklyn once produced a lot of food for New York City. You know, it was, it was over 100 years ago and, you know, maybe 130 years ago before it all left to the South and then internationally in the West Coast. Um, all of the economic activities and jobs related to that production and, 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 and processing was, was part of our economy and went away to other places. And every city, by the way, gets this now. Like moving those jobs back costs the city nothing and adds a lot to it. Very important. In this particular site in Brooklyn that we're talking about in Sunset Park, we're going to be creating uh, a, a lot of part-time and construction jobs, maybe you know, 100 or more, and probably about 25 you know, permanent green-collar full-time jobs. So it's it's not going to necessarily change the city's uh, unemployment rate, but it's it's a real meaningful thing for that that block and that neighborhood. And if it's if it's the first of many of these things, it, it really does start to add up and make a difference. Absolutely. Well, Paul, I, I thank you so much for joining us today. Ah, um, my pleasure. This is really interesting, and and as I anticipated, you're an excellent interview. So um, I hope you'll come back and tell us more about what's going on with Bright Farms and other projects that you're going to be working on. Is there anything in particular you'd like to leave with listeners? Um, is there a website? Is there information yeah. that they might want to look at if they want to learn more about Bright Farms? Yeah, for, for your uh, for your listeners uh, in the city, I would say you know there's a, a Harlem Best Yet supermarket that's selling our produce right now, which you can go cool. taste it for yourself, which is great. And uh, you know we will be soon selling at uh, probably by the end of the first or the beginning of the second quarter, so March of April of 2013, we'll be selling in A and P stores in the city. And uh, you can always check us out at brightfarms.com. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Paul, and we'll be in touch. I'm, I'm looking forward to I'd actually like to come and tour the farm sometime if that would be possible. But Would love to do um, that. Thank you. That'd be great. Okay, so until okay. until we meet again. Um, next okay. week, folks, my, my guest is going to be Jean Halloran from the Consumers Union. Um, she's going to be talking about antibiotics in the food chain, that is in our meat, that is poultry, pork, and cattle, uh, primarily, and as well as eggs. Um, and the unprecedented, and I mean this is unprecedented for Consumer Reports, which is run by Consumers Union, has been circulating a petition around the country to demand that the FDA and the government step in and stop antibiotic use in our food chain. So this should be a really interesting issue. This will be next week. Gene Halloran from Consumers Union. Until then, thanks so much. Have a great week. And thank you to my sponsor, Will Harris and White Oak Pastures. So long, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.